This is Africa Past and Present, episode 21. We're podcasting from the inner sanctum of the Digital Media Centre here at Michigan State University. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oleggi. Welcome, everyone. This is our second episode of 2009, and we're joined by Mara Leichman today, uh, an anthropologist from Michigan State University. Welcome, Mara. Thank you, Peter and Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Mara's work before we begin our conversation. Uh, Mara is uh, an anthropologist, as I said, who came to MSU at the same time that I did in the uh, fall of 2005. Uh, She studies the interconnections between religion and migration and politics, and also conversion to Shia Islam. And she does this through the examination of Muslim institutions and the communities they serve. And she has just recently uh, published an edited volume with Mamadou Djouf uh, from Colombia entitled New Perspectives on Islam in Senegal, Conversion, Migration, Wealth, Power, and Femininity, published by Palgrave Macmillan, hot off the presses, February uh, 2009. She is also working on a book manuscript entitled Becoming Shia in Africa. Lebanese migrants and Senegalese converts, which looks at the localization of these uh, very uh, transnational Shia movements in Senegal. And you'll remember the first episode of the podcast, we spoke with Sheikh Antababu, uh, historian of the Murid Brotherhood in Senegal. Uh, that was a, a Sufi uh, brotherhood. And so here we're going to be talking about a different branch of Islam in the same West African country of Senegal, but also looking at minority groups uh, in Senegal, minority Muslim groups. It's a very interesting uh, part of the world that uh, Mara has been exploring for, for some time. She's published articles in various journals, including Ethnic and Racial Studies, uh, and uh, Shia Affairs, as well as chapters in uh, various uh, scholarly connections. So a very accomplished young scholar, Mara, where should we kick it off? Maybe with the new book that you produced with uh, Mamadou Djouf. Uh, What was the inspiration for this wonderful collection of of essays? Well, Mamadou Djouf and I met several years ago now when he was still at University of Michigan um, and noticed that there seemed to be an unusually large number of uh, PhD students and other scholars doing research on Senegal, in particular on Islam in Senegal, So we felt it was uh, high time to have another edited volume come out uh, on Islam in Senegal, which is what this work is. And uh, it's an interdisciplinary volume. It's bringing together collections from uh, history, anthropology, sociology, political science, Islamic studies. And the goal of the volume is to critique uh, some of the existing dominant framework for understanding Islam in Senegal. That's why we call it New Perspectives uh, on Islam in Senegal. And the way we go about doing this is, um, well, first of all, some of the older uh, literature was inspired by Paul Marty, who was a French colonial administrator uh, who was actually born in Algeria before uh, starting to work in Senegal. And Paul Marty was very prolific. He wrote several uh, works uh, on Islam uh, throughout uh, various places in, in West and North Africa. And he was also known for starting to popularize the concept of Islam noir. 
and Islam Noir is a French colonial understanding of Black Islam or African Islam as distinct from Arab Islam. And in the in the French uh, framework, uh, the Africans were not as literate in Islam. They had a more magical Islam that incorporated some of these pre-Islamic uh, African traditions into Islam, which came much later uh, to West Africa. And in that sense, it was less of a threat to the French uh, colonial Why? <laughs> power. Why? Because they saw it as less authentic, less pure of an Islam than the uh, Arab Islam, uh, the more orthodox Islam as they saw it uh, coming from, uh, in this case, uh, Morocco, North Africa, Mauritania, but also other parts of the Arab world. And then this, this actually played out, this uh, concept of Islam noir, with the French uh, uh, policy towards the Lebanese in Senegal, because they tried actively to separate the Lebanese as this Arab uh, Muslim power from uh, mixing t with the uh, with the Black Africans uh, and in the Senegal. And the Lebanese, uh, the the group in Senegal that you have particularly researched, and and so this brings you into studies of migration and identity and generation. Mm -hmm. So all of that features into the book, and uh, I'll talk about my own work, I think, in a minute, but let me get back to some of the themes uh, of the volume. So starting from the work of Paul Marti, this has been a very dominant uh, framework for uh, mainly political scientists who have studied Islam in Senegal to look at this top-down uh, approach uh, to the study of Islam to focus on the so-called marabouts, the Islamic leaders of the Sufi orders, uh, and their relationship with the political and ec economic establishments in Senegal, uh, more so than looking at the masses of followers, the Talibay, and the religiosity of the uh, of the Sufi Muslims in Senegal. So in critiquing this dominant framework, uh, some of the chapters in the volume are looking uh, first at new methodologies. The historians are providing revisionist uh, history accounts, bringing in the voice of the Africans, uh, in addition to the colonial uh, archival documents, which has uh, been relied on for much now, of the historical accounts. Who are some of the historians accounts. that are contributing? Uh, we have James Searing, uh, Ali Drame, um, Mamadou Jouf, and uh, trying to think who else we have there. Without those are very well-known names. Yes, and we tried to have uh, Sheikh Babu participate as well, but unfortunately he was busy writing his own book and getting tenure at the time, so he had it's to Always a challenge out. to put the collections always together. Always a challenge to get everybody we want uh, into one uh, volume. Uh, so the historians are providing his, his uh, revisionist history accounts, also looking at uh, some of these themes from less well-known locations. Uh, Murid Islam has also been very dominant in the literature on Islam sure. in Senegal. Uh, so we have uh, John Glover as well has contributed a chapter, a history chapter, looking at uh, the Murid order from Darumusti, which is a, a village outside of the more dominant uh, headquarters of, Suf of uh, the Murid order in Tuba. And uh, Ali Drame has looked at uh, at the region of Casamance, which in the south of Senegal, which is also understudied. So location uh, has is one way of uh, promoting new perspectives on Islam, but also new themes, new theoretical contributions. Uh, looking at uh, conversion, not only from African religions to uh, Islam, but also from one branch of Islam to another, which mm. is featured in my own work on Senegalese Shi'i Muslims. Uh, these are Sufi Muslims, these are who, are Sufi Muslims who are converting to Shi'i Islam, sometimes mm -hmm. uh, from uh, a more Salafi uh, Sunni uh, tradition before coming to Shi'i Islam. And I can talk about that more in depth in a minute. But we also have chapters looking at the Ibadu Rahman movement uh, in Dakar, uh, looking at the Tablighi Jama'at in the Gambia, which is uh, an Indian-Pakistani-influenced uh, order, uh, English-speaking primarily. 
and uh, also looking at reform movements from within uh, Senegal Sufi orders themselves. So looking not only chapters uh, are contributing not only to conversion from uh, African religions to Islam, but also from one uh, Islamic tradition to another and bringing gender back in too. So the Sufi brotherhoods with the emphasis on brother has been very dominant in the past, uh, not looking at the role of women uh, for the most part uh, whatsoever. So other uh, anthropologists and sociologists are contributing uh, to looking at gender and sexuality, to looking at uh, dress in Senegal and how that plays out in some of these uh, religious orders. Also in looking at the power and the role of the women, not only in uh, religion, but in economics as well, which tries to break down some of those stereotypes of uh, the Talibé, the uh, followers of the Marabouts being very submissive and uh, just caving into uh, the uh, Islamic authority. Uh, also looking at uh, new constructions, we have one chapter in the first section looking at the architecture of mosques and how these have transformed over uh, the past uh, decades as well to physically bring women space in the mosques uh, as well. So there's a lot more I could say on other contributions looking at the history of Islamic education, but I'll stop there. It sounds like a wonderful volume of cutting-edge perspectives. Could we perhaps zero in, Mara, on your own work on, on the Shiites in, in Senegal? And uh, maybe you could also say, uh, tell us a little bit about how you were drawn into doing this research in the first place, but also what were the your main findings. I know that part of it is to do with migration and identities and generation. Perhaps you could just elaborate about the, this interesting community. Certainly. So I've been looking at uh, Shi'i Muslims in Senegal. I actually came to African studies through the study of the Middle East. Uh, and by chance, I was mm. getting a master's in international relations at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, I was actually caught in the middle of a conflict between two professors between whether Morocco, I was interested in studying Morocco at the time, whether that would fall under Middle East studies or African studies. And due to this conflict, I ended up in African studies, uh, taking courses on the North Africa as well as Sub-Saharan Africa. So that was my first exposure to African studies. But it was uh, during this master's program when a Kenyan professor uh, knowing my interest in the Middle East had handed me an article looking at the Lebanese of Cote d'Ivoire. And when I got to Brown University to study uh, what I thought was going to be my dissertation looking at Moroccan immigration, I had done some work in the past uh, on Moroccan remittances and had done a year-long internship at Citibank in Casablanca. I uh, realized that I had to do a second master's on the way to the PhD because my first master's was in international relations and they needed me to focus more on anthropology. So I had the opportunity to go uh, pretty much anywhere I wanted to do a second master's project uh, on the way to the PhD. So I decided at the time that I was going to go to Cote d'Ivoire and check out this Lebanese community. Well, in December 1999, as we know, there was a coup in yes. Ivory Coast and Senegal seemed to be a little uh, more safe and stable a country for me to do research in. So that was really how I ended up in Senegal. Um, but what I tell the Lebanese of Senegal is not the, this convoluted story, of course, <laughs> that I had no intention of going there in the beginning whatsoever. But uh, all Lebanese know Michigan. There's a very large Lebanese uh, population in Michigan. There's also a large Lebanese West African population now living in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. And by chance, my mother happened to work with a Lebanese woman who was born in Senegal. Right. So that's the connection that right. I made clear to the Lebanese right. in Senegal, which uh, seemed to work a little better than... Uh, that's a fascinating serendipity. <laughs> 
<laughs> brings it all together. Brings How many Lebanese uh, live in uh, Dakar or in Senegal um, as a whole? Currently, numbers are very hard to come by, but the somewhere between 15 and 30,000, maybe more along the lines of 20 to 25,000 Lebanese currently living in Senegal. And the history goes back quite a way. History goes back to the 1880s through the 1920s was the first main wave of Lebanese uh, to West Africa. They uh, ended up, the, the travel routes at the time were to leave uh, Lebanon, which was then, uh, during most of that time, under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, which had a very harsh rule. Uh, there was also massacres uh, by the Druze of uh, some Lebanese Christians and, uh, in, in 1860, and that led to some uh, emigration from Lebanon as well. Uh, so for economic reasons, for political reasons, to avoid conscription in the Ottoman army in World War, II, in World War I, uh, there were many reasons Lebanese were leaving through Marseille in France, which was the transportation hub of the time, thinking they were going to the Americas because the first wave of Lebanese immigration was in the United States and Brazil. Um, but they got on this boat in Marseille and the boat docked in Dakar. And some of the Lebanese didn't even realize that they were in Africa. They thought they were in the Americas. They got off the boat, mm. and uh, the French needed intermediaries to work uh, in the peanut trade between the French who lived in the cities and the uh, Senegalese peasants in the rural areas. So once the Lebanese realized they could make a living in Senegal, they called for their brothers and cousins and other people back from their villages of origin in Lebanon, and uh, larger waves of migration started. So today, when I got to Senegal for the first time in 2000, the Lebanese population in Senegal are primarily about 95% Shi'i Muslim, which uh, brings us into my emphasis on Shi'i Islam. Hmm. Although in the, in the first generation, uh, they were more evenly divided among Muslims and Christians and other Lebanese populations in other countries in West Africa, in Ghana, in Liberia, Sierra Leone, for example, have a larger concentration of uh, Christians or Sunni Muslims. So Senegal and Ivory Coast as well, which has a larger population of Lebanese today, are predominantly Shi'i. Uh, so when I got to Senegal, I was interested in studying these themes of religion uh, and migration. And because the, the majority of Lebanese were Shi'i Muslims, I decided that would be a natural focus as Did they well. convert uh, to Shia Islam the when Lebanese? they arrived? Or did, no. were they already... They were already uh, Shi'i Muslims. The Christians tended to, okay. Shi'i Muslims would reproduce at a higher rate than the Christians. The Christians would tend to go elsewhere. Uh, when things got tough, because Senegal was a predominantly Muslim country, uh, and a lot of Christians will leave to go uh, get an education in uh, Europe, uh, in the United States, elsewhere, to get university degrees and not come back. Uh, so there are other demographic uh, reasons for why Lebanese in Senegal today are predominantly Shi'i. And did the, Christ the Lebanese Christians convert? Tashi, you have some minor cases of conversion, mostly for intermarriage. Uh, if mm -hmm. a Lebanese Christian man wants to marry a Lebanese uh, Muslim woman, uh, according to Islam, he would need to convert if they wanted to do that marriage in a mosque. But you, you don't have very many cases of Lebanese uh, converting to What one about the relations of the Lebanese Senegalese to the to the Senegalese? That's what I was going to use. The Sunni or Sufi branch. I, I gather there has been some conversion there. There, there is some conversion yeah. there, and that's the other end of my research, looking not only at the Lebanese community but also at this uh, group of Senegalese converts. And it was through many meetings with the Lebanese uh, Sheikh in Dakar that I first learned about this community of Senegalese who were converting. 
Uh, I mean, a lot of people won't use the word converting. I don't have a problem using the word converting, and other people do use that uh, in Senegal from one branch of Islam to another. But it was through these meetings with the Lebanese Sheikh when he first told me quite proudly that he had uh, influentially uh, converted some of these Senegalese uh, who were working closely with him to Shi'i Islam. And at one point, he even showed me the stack of conversion papers that he had signed uh, with the Senegalese population. Now, for the listeners who don't know, uh, Senegal is, a, is, is not a Shi'i country. Senegal is not a Shi'i country. It's about 90, somewhere between 90 and 94% uh, Sunni Muslim, predominantly uh, Sufi with the different Sufi orders. The Tijanis are the largest Sufi order. Uh, the Murids are the most well-known through all of this literature on the Murid order, uh, which was the first Sufi order to be founded by a uh, black African uh, man and the other orders had come down from the Arab world and the Qadrs are the oldest order but the smallest one today. So you have uh, various Sufi orders in Senegal which form the majority of the population. This is a big deal of, <laughs> in a country with that kind of a, of a religious landscape to convert uh, to Shia Islam. Uh, it happens, starts happening in the 70s? It started uh, happening in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, again, the Lebanese had been the living catalyst? there. What's the catalyst? Catalyst is the Iranian Revolution. Uh, the Senegalese had been in contact with the Lebanese population for quite some time before that. Some of them had first come across Shi'i Islam through their either friendship with uh, Lebanese uh, in the villages in Dakar, through meeting with the Lebanese sheikh, uh, who had taken upon this title uh, that he would be the Caliph Ahl al-Bayt. The Caliph is the Sunni leader. Uh, which is the name given to the heads of the brotherhoods in Senegal, but he transformed this title, got it approved by the various uh, Islamic uh, the heads of the brotherhoods in Senegal that he would be Caliph, the Sunni head of Ahl al-Bayt, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, or another name for the Shia, which is an extremely odd title and exists only for this Lebanese uh, sheikh in Senegal. Oh, this fascinates me because in Southern African studies, converge, the study of conversion narratives is one of the cutting-edge areas at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so both literary scholars and historians are looking at conversion narratives in the 19th century. So I wonder what the sources, what your, what your research material was. Were, were you using interviews or were there actually examples of what we have in some other parts of the world, these narratives of conversion? I was, yeah. I was doing interviews, getting life history narratives mm. of people's experiences, mm. uh, some somewhat looking at other documents if I could come across those. Um, but uh, like I said, I first came across this through the Lebanese sheikh showing me the stack of conversion uh, papers that he had signed. So when I asked him about this community of Senegalese Shia, he said, oh, no, no, you're here to study the Lebanese population. This should be of no interest <laughs> to your research. He clearly did not want me to uh, have easy access to this population. So it was through asking around uh, at other Senegalese uh, contacts that I was able to get uh, the name of a Senegalese uh, Shi convert uh, through Walfadri News, which uh, used to be at one point a more radical Islamic uh, newspaper. It started as a biweekly paper and then became a daily uh, somewhat op oppositional paper to the government and to Le Soleil, which is a national newspaper, mm. and uh, today has gone much more mainstream, even going into television and airing music videos. Uh, but they had this reputation in the beginning of being a more radical Islamic uh, newspaper. They run uh, every Friday an Islamic radio program, and they had featured uh, Sunnis as well as Shi'i uh, from the Senegalese community speaking in Walaf to other Senegalese uh, about the differences in these branches of Islam. So it was through Walaf 
Al-Fajri uh, radio that I had gotten the name of uh, the first uh, Senegalese Shi'i that I came in contact with in Dakar. And then after meeting him, I then got names of others through this somewhat snowball effect uh, of reaching out to the community. They were extremely open to me attending their events, uh, which was like, quite fascinating. I ended up going back there in last January, a year ago, uh, for three weeks for Ashura, which is uh, the predominant uh, ritual celebration, commemoration rather, of Shi'i, uh, remembering the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, who was murdered by uh, Sunni Muslims about 1400 years ago in the Battle of Karbala, which is today in Iraq. So this is the, the main Shi'i commemoration, which is uh, remembered all over the Shi'i world in, in various ways. Uh, the West will focus on self-flagellation, uh, Iran, you have passion plays. There's various ways uh, that people go about uh, remembering this martyrdom. Uh, and in Senegal, the way the Senegalese, uh, which is also different from how the Lebanese will commemorate this in Dakar, but the Senegalese have now started to do these large conferences and debates uh, in Wolof, as well as a mix of uh, Arabic and French, a little bit of other languages, but predominantly in Wolof, catering to uh, the Senegalese, uh, mostly Sunni, Sufi population, to educate them about what is uh, Shi'i Islam, what is Ashura, why is this day a day of uh, sadness and not a day of celebration, because in Senegal, uh, the day of Ashura conflicts with a Senegalese holiday called Tamkharit, which is some like, somewhat like our Halloween, where boys will dress as girls and girls dress as boys, and they play the drum and go from house to house and get gifts and eat couscous, and it's a fairly joyous occasion. Uh, some believe celebrating the Muslim New Year, some believe celebrating uh, this martyrdom of Hussein at the hands of uh, the uh, Sunni Caliph Yazid at the time. So th there's a lot of tensions that can take place uh, between Sunnis and Shi'is as a result of this holiday. Uh, so the Senegalese way of commemorating is through having these conferences and debates uh, really catering to mm. uh, Sunni Muslims. And one of the other themes that you've looked at with the community of mm -hmm. Lebanese Senegalese is the transnational identities that were developing from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And this is also, uh, I expect, sort of merging into your more recent research on globalization, mm -hmm. including in uh, the diaspora in London, the super city of London. How, how do the and and of course you still maintain an interest as you, in the Middle East. You mentioned Iraq earlier. How do all these different movements uh, and identities play out? Well, I see myself first and foremost as a scholar of transnational Shi'i Islam, and in my Senegal project. Uh, as I think a weakness of much of the literature on transnational migration is that it looks primarily at migrants in the receiving society and their relationship to their uh, former uh, country of origin. So I'm not looking at this project only at the Lebanese and Senegal and uh, the relationship to Lebanon, although that's certainly some of what I look at, uh, especially the reaction to the 2006 war in Lebanon and how that played out in Dakar. I've uh, recently put mm. together a, an article looking at that. Um, but I'm also looking through bringing in this case study of the Senegalese converts uh, to Shi'i Islam, that you have these wider transnational influences of Shi'i Islam becoming localized in Senegal. And the Iranian revolution had a big role in this as well, uh, with a lot of the media coverage on Imam Khomeini back in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. That was how a lot of Senegalese first uh, came across Shi'i Islam. And after uh, hearing about this, reading about this, they then wanted to follow more and more into who is this Imam Khomeini, what is Shi'i Islam. And they started reading texts and uh, getting books 
uh, through a lot of this uh, global transnational proselytization, uh, some scholars in Iran and elsewhere would be sending free literature uh, to Africa, translated into French or English uh, or in Arabic, looking at uh, Shi'i Islam and some of the sources as well. So for the, the, for the main uh, leaders of the Senegalese Shi'i movement, it's through their knowledge of Arabic, through their literacy in the Arabic language, that they were able to access this literature that was not so prominent in Senegal and to bypass the authority of these uh, Sufi orders of the leaders. Um, so looking at globalization outside of Senegal, it was actually through my research in Senegal I came across as well uh, people speaking of this, uh, the Al-Khoui Foundation, which is headquartered in London and is the focus of my, my new research project. And what they do as well is they distribute uh, some literature and publish literature in French and English uh, and distribute that upon request uh, to different Shi'i around the world. So some of the Senegalese had uh, written and requested uh, free literature and other uh, documentation, calendars, other uh, types of uh, uh, propaganda like that to uh, help educate them about Shi'i Islam in Senegal. So I first heard uh, through Senegal about the work of the Al-Khoui Foundation. Uh, they are based in, in London. They were founded by Ayatollah Al-Khoui, who was the predecessor to Ayatollah Al-Sistani, who we hear about a lot uh, in the news uh, regarding Iraq. Uh, and Ayatollah al-Khoui, he died in 1992, but before his death in 1989, he founded this uh, transnational Shi'i Islamic uh, NGO, which caters to the, uh, the first generation of Shi'i youth who were born in the United Kingdom and who did not have the religious uh, training that their parents had uh, back in the Middle East or Asia, where many of these uh, Shi'i migrants originated in before coming to London. So he built uh, mosques and schools and other foundations. Uh, he's got a branch in, in Queens in New York, as well as in Montreal, and various projects uh, throughout uh, the Middle East and Asia, as well as uh, helping to build mosques in, in Africa as well, uh, spreading the literature. And uh, I know they have mosque projects in Uganda and uh, elsewhere on the African continent as well. So it was through uh, my work in Africa, I came across the work of this uh, Hui Foundation. And I'm interested not only in their uh, work uh, in uh, global Shi'i affairs, but also how they've adapted their own work uh, be by being headquartered in London to uh, what was then uh, the George W. Bush and Tony Blair's uh, War on Terror. Um, and the way they've done this, uh, the terminology, Obama's no longer using that terminology and good riddance to that, but this does play into the project as well by looking at how some of these Islamic organizations uh, in London in particular have uh, adapted their own goals and have catered to this Western policy on the war on terrorism. And in the case of uh, the United Kingdom, which is somewhat different from how this has played out in the United States, uh, Islamic organizations are, are literally worked into the uh, British Parliament and the government, and they're consulted uh, by the, the uh, different uh, home and community uh, local, uh, I'm blanking on the name here, of the actual government body. Uh, but like the home office of, uh, hmm. of uh, Tony Blair was incorporating these different Muslim groups into uh, the parliament and the different uh, governmental meetings. So the, the Al-Khoui Foundation, there was a lot of uh, protest about some of these Sunni groups uh, being seen as the spokespeople for all of Muslims in the United Kingdom. And unlike other uh, countries in Europe, uh, you have a very large 
uh, unusually large Shi'i population in, uh, in the United Kingdom, unlike elsewhere in Europe. So the Al-Hui Foundation has become somewhat of a spokesman, uh, spokes group uh, for the Shi'i population living in the UK. I think this is uh, really quite a, a complicated uh, picture and process that you're outlining, but I think it, it really shows how if you want to study globalization, you can't leave Africa out of it because you'd be missing uh, a very important part of this transnational Shia uh, uh, Islam that you've been tracing uh, across the Middle East and, and West Africa and now into uh, Northern Europe. I think this is uh, all the time we have, but uh, Mara Leichman, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And thank you for having me. Well, our next podcast will actually focus on the country of Malawi, and I'm going to run away to Malawi. But before I do... Uh, Next week, uh, Peter Araleji is going to be interviewing Professor Wapu Mulwafu from the University of Malawi, an environmental historian whose specialty is the history of water. So join us next week, and uh, the episode after that, I will be interviewing Professor Paul Darby from the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland, where I'm going to be traveling to. So lots of interesting things coming up on the podcast. Hope you'll join us. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>